So here you are running this company that has three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars in revenues, and your parents don't even know. Yeah, it was a weird. That was a weird moment. That was uh, my. It's it's probably my favorite story, and probably my parents' least favorite story. Um, is I got some like birthday. It was like my fourteenth, fifteenth birthday or something. I got some birthday money from like my grandparents or something. It wasn't very much. It was like fifty or a hundred pounds. And I went to the bank to put it in the bank account, and I had like a kids savings bank account. Um, and this was back when you didn't have online banking or anything like that, but you had this like little book and they would like dot matrix print a new line in the book every time you went in with the balance. I remember those. Um, and I remember going in and and the book was like 87, 93, 115, like as I'd been saving up money. And then it'd been sort of probably maybe a year since I'd last gone in. And I went to put this, this hundred in and it went for like kind of, 117 to like 112,000. And then that led to the one, the bank thought they'd made a mistake. And then that led to me having a somewhat awkward conversation with, with my parents um, in like a cafe around the corner where I had to sit down and be like, no, I'm not doing anything illegal. Like kind of, I've started this thing, like it's going pretty well. Um, So yeah, that was, that was the, that was sort of the beginning. And when they found out and then that led to a probably, year-long conversation um, about me wanting to drop out of school to continue running that business. From Foundation Capital, this is B2B a CEO, a podcast about the startup journey, about going from idea to IPO and growing from a founder into a CEO. On each episode, I speak with notable CEOs and founders and get their stories about what it took to build a company of scale and become a leader in the enterprise. I'm Ashu Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. On this episode, I'm coming to you from London, where I'm spending the summer getting to know the UK startup scene and meeting entrepreneurs, including my guest for this episode, Christian Owens, founder and CEO of Paddle, a B2B payments infrastructure platform. Christian is a fascinating fellow. He dropped out of high school at 16 to run his first software company, which he scaled to 5 million in revenue. Not a bad lemonade stand. He started his second company paddle when he was 18. And in the 10 years since, he scaled it to a SaaS unicorn with over 50 million in revenue. In our wide ranging conversation, recorded in person at Paddle's offices, we cover everything from Christian's brief but wondrous career to how to scale an enterprise company when you're starting as a complete novice, to what the current economic environment means for fundraising. Christian is unusually thoughtful and we had a fun talk that I think is really worth your time. Enjoy. And if you know any other entrepreneurs in Europe who you think I should meet this summer, shoot me a message. So Christian, welcome to the B2B a CEO podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, so tell me a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Yeah, so I'm Christian. Um, I am from the UK, uh, born and raised sort of a hundred miles outside of London. Um, and basically my entire life has been spent building software companies. So my current company is Paddle. I've been working on this for the last 10 years. But before that, I dropped out of school, dropped out of high school um, when I was 16 uh, after kind of starting a software company there. I grew it to about kind of five or six million in revenue um, and kind of convinced my parents to let me drop out of, of, of school um, to run that business and that running that was really how I kind of came up with the, the the concept behind what we now try and do at Paddle. Wow, that's quite a story. So you started that company at what age? Um, so I taught myself to code um, with just self-taught YouTube videos, that kind of stuff when I was probably 13, 14, started the first company around then um, and then dropped out of school when I was 16 and, and kind of and scaled it kind of through that. It must have been an interesting conversation with your parents. It was. It was an interesting, it was both an interesting conversation because the 
all of the concepts were entirely foreign to them. Like they're not entrepreneurs, they're not business owners. They're also not technical. Um, so there was that aspect of them not fully understanding what it was. And then the other aspect was I probably didn't tell them for the first year. Um, so I, we were probably doing sort of 300, 400,000 in revenue before I even told my parents. Can you tell our mostly American audience a little bit about what Paddle does? Yeah. Um, so Paddle was really started kind of with the challenges that I faced in running that business. So that business for context was building invoicing software for freelancers. Um, so kind of think website designer, graphic designer, you hire them, sort of they need to invoice you, track their time, all of that stuff. Building that business and low ACV product. So it was maybe a hundred bucks a year um, and five million in revenue. So tens of thousands of customers wow. everywhere in the world. No sales motion, nothing. Um, very early PLG. Yeah, very uh, accidental early PLG as well. It wasn't kind of deliberate at all. It was just build a really good product and, and people came. But the, the challenge that you had was, I realized that we were a pretty small team. We were probably like 10 people, um, mostly like contractors and, and, and people. I was doing most of the engineering work um, and realized that we were spending more time figuring out how we pay taxes in different places around the world how we deal with fraud, how we deal with kind of chargebacks and disputes, um, how you take payments from, from some, cause this is, this is like pre kind of this revolution in payments that we've had. We're mostly using PayPal. Yeah. Um, and the account would get blocked in different countries all the time and, and sort of all this stuff. So we're spending more time dealing with that stuff than we are actually running the business. Um, so I emailed a bunch of people. I was like, what do you use to solve this? And everybody's response was, well, we just kind of built it from parts. Um, so Paddle was really started to solve that problem. So how do you, what is the operating infrastructure that you use to run and grow a software company, particularly internationally? So payments, recurring billing, how do you deal with taxes, fraud, subscription management, kind of all of those aspects. Um, and really, really kind of solving for the problem. If you go and talk to 10 different software companies um, that have never spoken to each other, they all describe building the same infrastructure to each other to kind of run the back office of the business. Um, so that's what, what Paddle does and has been doing for the, the past nine years or so. That's very cool. And as companies scale, do they continue to use Paddle or do they end up building that infrastructure themselves or do they move to what some might call an enterprise solution like Zora? Yeah, that, that's been, that has been the, the most surprising part of running this business because um, went into it with the assumption that these businesses absolutely would graduate. Um, it's sort of like, cause I had never run a business. I'd certainly never run a business at scale. So my assumption was, oh, as soon as you hit 10, 20, $30 million worth of revenue, it absolutely makes sense for you to do this stuff yourself. Like, why wouldn't you? And then we had our first customer go from two people to 20 people to 200 people and like a couple of million bucks in revenue to a hundred million bucks in revenue. And you talk to them and they're like, no, this thing works. Sort of, it solves all our problems. We've never, we haven't had to build out these teams and infrastructure um, so we're going to continue using paddle. And, and so like the early assumption, and it probably held us back because we built the product, not with enterprises in mind, um, was that they would graduate. They never have. Um, we've lost probably 10 customers in 10 years, like wow. kind of deliberate kind of real churn. Some have gone out of business and, and things like that. But in terms of real churn of customers at scale, maybe 10 in 10 years. That's very impressive. So 10 years is a while for a, for a software company. Uh, if you had to break down the paddled story so far into discrete chapters, what would those chapters be? Yeah, I think that there's there's definitely a few. There was the first couple of years where us really kind of just throwing stuff at the wall and see what sticks. We had a hypothesis of a business we wanted to create, which was selling software is too difficult. It should be easier than it is. Um, and the thesis was kind of correct that people wanted a better way to sell software. Our execution was entirely incorrect. Um, we thought the way to do that was to build a marketplace. Um, so we actually, the first version of Paddle was a marketplace for buying software. Um, it's all for the sales motion, in a sense. Well, it or was... the customer discovery. Yeah, it was It was customer discovery, but also kind of the... the this has turned out to be true with some of the PLG motion, but kind of it was, what's the best experience that you have with buying something? It's kind of like Amazon or kind of any of these app store marketplaces. So it was like, how do we build, bring both from a buy side and a sell side? So it was like, how do we build, bring that buy and sell side experience to enterprise software? 
Um, so that was the first version. That's chapter one. That was first version, chapter one. Um, didn't work at all. We made about $1,000 worth of revenue in the first sort of like eight months um, kind of, of building and, and trying to sell the thing. Had no trouble getting companies to sign up, but kind of didn't actually transact. Chapter two is it's sort of like the pivot. It was the realization that these companies didn't want a marketplace. They wanted the guts of one. They wanted all the infrastructure that goes to power a marketplace and actually all the ancillary services that go into um, uh, sort of running a marketplace, dealing with kind of taxes and commerce, dealing with first line billing related support, um, like someone's credit card fails and things like that. How do you kind of overcome that or a subscription fails? Um, so it was really transitioning the business from being a kind of a B2B to C kind of brand mm-hmm. to a pure B2B kind of almost infrastructure, um, kind of infrastructure and operational infrastructure business. Um, and that was really where we found our footing, started selling to these these kind of people who look like us, small businesses, couple of million dollars in revenue, usually founder run, founder own, mostly bootstrapped actually, um, and kind of really kind of cornered sort of a niche for ourselves within those businesses. Um, so that was chapter two, building like a nice business, like through all this time, this is probably the first sort of chapter one was probably the first two years of the business. This is probably the next two years of the business, two, three, um, incredibly capital efficient, like through that process. Um, my first time, my second time running a business, but my first time I would say running a company, um, like we were building this to scale. Um, so that was sort of chapter two, that pivot and building a business. And then chapter three was this realization that kind of this business that starts on paddle stays on paddle. Um, this idea that some of these businesses go from being a million bucks in revenue to 10 to a hundred. And actually this infrastructure can scale with them. Um, So that was probably the next sort of couple of years of realizing that actually these businesses were going to grow and it was going to be this natural sort of flywheel within the business. Um, We were going to grow with them because we monetized sort of the payment volume and kind of the transactional volume actually like the unit economics of the business, net revenue retention and everything was really in our favor. Um, and we could focus on, okay, kind of how do we build a product? And this came kind of our shift in focus in chapter three was how do we build a product that's six months ahead of what our largest customer needs? So we knew that we were still going to acquire these businesses when they were doing five, 10 million mm-hmm. bucks in revenue, but we know we can kind of see around corners for them and anticipate what their needs are going to be when they're doing 50 or a hundred. Um, and then probably around that chapter and sort of, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, probably the first two, two and a half of those, those chapters, the business building mindset that I was in was one of like, stay alive. It's like, this thing can't fail. We're going to figure it out, like all this stuff. And then at some point around them, then it went from stay alive to don't squander the opportunity. Like we can build a really big business here and potentially power commerce for lots and lots of software companies that exist in the world. How do we maximize that? And I'd say that's probably the chapter that we're in now is is how do we build this infrastructure for every software company that exists in the world um, and kind of not squander the opportunity that we have. And that transition from chapter three to chapter four, it sounds like is also a little bit of a transition from thinking about product because the first three evolutions are evolutions in the product mm-hmm. to really focusing on sort of building the the company. I mean, yeah. Obviously, there's company building at every stage, but but today you're sort of probably spending a lot more time on that than, than the product itself. Oh, absolutely. I think the transition between comp- in company building goes from one of we're solving problems that we had six weeks ago, and that's why we're making this executive hire or restructuring this team to trying to think about how we're solving problems that we're going to have in six or 12 or 24 months' time. Um, and I think that's the the deliberate shift that, that kind of happened from a company building standpoint. And it is one of of kind of shifting mindset of the company itself is a product. Um, and how do we start thinking about it in that way and iterating on the same way that we do a, a, from an engineering standpoint? Um, that that was the, the mental shift. I, I love the way you described it, that, you know, in in, fate, in chapter four, in a sense, the company becomes the product for you and you're, yeah. you're thinking. And, and it's a, it, it is a very significant change in mindset. And, and as you rightly pointed out, it comes with the change from staying alive to, you know, 
let's not squander the opportunity. How do we how do we build something that will stand the test of time? Exactly. And will be an enduring an enduring company. Yeah. And that and that's really my ambition. It's not exit IPO. It's nothing kind of there's no specific kind of like uh, kind of outcome or milestone. It's like how do we build an enduring company that really sort of fully solves the set of problems that we set out to solve. And yes, that's a product thing. Um, but then it's a, how do you build an organization, a company that, that can think in cycles that are longer than two quarters ahead? Tell me a little bit about your fundraising journey in each of these four chapters. So chapter one, it sounded like you started off self-funded. You Pretty had, much. You had a little bit of money from, from, at 18, you were rich relative to most 18-year-olds. Yeah, relative, relative to most, yes. Um, I... Not very material, though. So sort of like all of the money that kind of those businesses made was reinvested in those businesses. So we started Paddle with a little bit of capital that kind of that we had from from that business. Um, and then... And when you say we, was there a co-founder at that stage? Yeah, so I hired a, a person to help me in the previous business, Harrison, who became my co-founder at Paddle. Um, and I was much more technically focused. He was much more biz dev kind of um, focused. And so started off with our own capital, then actually quite quickly, probably within the first six months, decided to raise outside capital from an angel investor. He invested 150K and it was really, we didn't need the money, but it was really, we wanted, it was, it's this idea of we built a business, we'd never built a company. Um, so it was, give us, a, our initial ask was, can we come and sit in your office and give us a couple of desks? We'll pay for them. Um, but like when we have a question, can you like roughly point us in the direction of the person that we should go and you like, want advice? Yeah. You, you wanted a mentor. Um, and we, but we wanted the operational mentor mentorship as well. So it's like, we'd never run payroll before. Cause everybody previously was like contractors. So it was like, it was like really specific things like that. And he was like, yeah, you can come and work in my office, do whatever you like. And I'll point you in the direction of people and I'll mentor you and all that stuff. But on the condition that I can invest in the company. Um, so we, said yes um we raised that 150k and then the first sort of we were very lean the first sort of year or so like we had 150k we didn't even know we were allowed to spend it um like we and it was chapter one because yeah. you, you you'd been self-funded in your last startup and you had never you'd been exactly. incredibly frugal yeah 100 percent. so we we built the first version of this marketplace we'd launched it kind of literally hadn't touched the money um and then sort of we started like trying to market this marketplace, probably wasted a couple hundred thousand dollars trying to make it work. Um, and then when we, had, when we went through sort of the pivot, uh, let's call it, into, okay, we're going to build the infrastructure as opposed to the thing. We, we initially signed up the first couple of customers before we did the pivot, before we shut down the consumer side of the marketplace. So that gave us a little bit of confidence that, okay, we were roughly on the right track. Um, and then we, at that point, we, we raised about a million dollars, um, to kind of stop pushing that business. Um, and the experience of raising money was, was quite interesting. Like I yeah, So tell me more about that. Yeah, so, I didn't. Because you're all still all of 19 or I'm something. 19, 19, 19 and change. Yeah, I'm 19. It's, it's nine years ago in UK. Enterprise software is probably not the hottest thing. Yeah. So I'm 19. I get introduced by that angel investor to somebody who works at a firm, um, called Balderton, um, which used to be Benchmark Europe, um, and I didn't even know what I didn't even know what venture capital was. Um, like walking into that meeting, and it was really interesting because they knew that I didn't have I didn't have a deck, I didn't have anything, but they dropped me into a Monday morning kind of partner meeting. So it's like twelve of them around the table, um, just grilling this nineteen-year-old on kind of the business and sort of. We'd obviously started to do this pivot, but we didn't really have any traction on numbers beyond like a couple of customers. Um, and I remember, I, I distinctly remember the meeting because I went in and I didn't even know how much I was raising. I was like a million, like kind of sort of, it sounds like a nice round number. Um, and sort of went through the the, the motions of, of doing that stuff. And I think I actually offended a couple of them because they were talking about... Um, kind of this was like the PLG was rising and I recognized like the thing that I was betting basically parallel was the fact that these businesses were going to be hybrids. Like you were going to have PLG and enterprise traditional enterprise sales in one business and you were going to need infrastructure that allowed you to do both rather than having two different systems. Um, and there was a couple of people in that room who had made vast sums of money 
building either very enterprise or very kind of almost consumer kind of software companies. So and the idea that both would, would exist was, was yeah, you're either, still a hard one for people to get their head around. Yeah, it was you're either one or the other. Yeah. Um, so actually, why would, if you're targeting this at B2B software companies, why would you build it with sort of B2C dynamics in mind in terms of how these businesses are going to sell? Um, so that meeting went terribly. Um, left the meeting and one of the partners, a guy called Mark Evans, um, who had been at Balderton for a long time, um, pulled me into the corridor and he says, those guys are never, ever going to do this deal. Um, I'll do it. Um, personally. Personally. Um, he was like, I need to get their permission and everything like that. But given how much of a train wreck that was, I don't think permission is going to be too tricky in this instance. Um, but I'll do it personally. Um, so he invested, I think about 800K um, and sort of the other angel investor who I had also named Mark confusingly um, did the other 200 and we, we had about a million um, there to then go and kind of run this um, kind of execute this pivot fully and actually build off a sales team and, and kind of do, do all this stuff um, at the same time. I guess both Marks have done pretty well. They have done pretty well. Yeah. Um, Mark, Mark Evans um, actually left Balderton founded a, an early stage fund in London called Kindred um, we then became the first check out of that fund um, as well when we raised follow on a, a couple of years later. So tell me, tell me more about the, the next stage. So chapter one was 150k of angel money. Yep. Chapter two was a million dollars of effectively angel money. Yep. Uh, what was the next milestone on the fundraising side? Um, next milestone was fairly quickly afterwards. We we got initial traction in that in in the sort of post pivot um, quite quickly, and we raised a Series A. And this was in 20... So founded the business in 2012. This was probably 2014-ish. Okay, so um, still late, early. Yeah, so still early. Um, 2014, 2015. Um, and we raised a Series A. Back then, a th- Series A was 3.2 million. Um, so it's sort of... That's a, that's a pre-seed round these days. Um, we raised At that... At least it was in December. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so raised that from a, a fund in London, an interesting fund in London called BGF um, that sort of doesn't exist in its current form um, today. Um, but we had been just so capital efficient like throughout this whole journey and sort of still are today. Um, we were roughly burning a dollar for every $2 of revenue that we would add. Um, so sort of became a fairly easy check to write. We Up until we did our Series C, um, uh, kind of 18 months ago, we'd never actually done a fundraising. It's always it always been preempted. We'd always been kind of offered money. Um, so we did that, and then we kind of entered sort of what I would call like the traditional venture cadence of raising money every kind of couple of years, 18 to 24 months or, um, or so. Um, so so did the Series A happened when you had sort of demonstrated success in terms of product market fit. Yep. In chapter two, and and you were starting to sort of really now start scale. Yeah, as a B two B company. Yeah, we were doing about hundred k a month in revenue. Um, yeah, so it was a real, it was a real business at that point. Million exactly. dollar plus run rate. Yep. Uh, chapter and was the Series B and Series C similar, or is there anything that's worth adding to the story? Um, series B was like we got a lot more deliberate about who we were raising money from. So, um, so we raised a Series B from a fund called Notion, um, who are a big B two B and fintech investor in in Europe. Um, so we got very serious about the fact we were a B two B company. Um, and we were selling to other SaaS companies and we wanted kind of that expertise brought on another investor called 83 North, um, in that round. Um, and then kind of kept pushing. We raised our series C, um, in 2020. Uh, so it was a kind of a COVID raise, let's call it. Um, it was we, good timing 2020 by, was, yeah. you know, so we, we, we started the, we started the raise in March. Okay. okay. Um, so not so good time. Yeah. We saw the raise in March. We closed it in June, um, and sort of that was about seventy million dollars. Um, and sort of we were huge net beneficiaries of of COVID I'm as sure. the world moved online yeah. and everybody bought more B two B software. Um, kind of the business just compounded, um, and actually we needed the money to kind of scale operations more than anything else, of like catch up with the the growth that we were having. Um, and then most recently, a couple of months ago, we raised um, kind of just over $200 million um, from KKR. Um, used a good portion of that money to acquire another business as well. Um, and that's very much 
those two rounds, like the, the, the $70 million round was very much kind of, kind of catch up with kind of where the business had grown to. The $200 million round was very much like, okay, we're in deliberate, don't squander the opportunity mode. Like, let's sort of think bigger about kind of how we're doing this. So let's talk a little bit more about the current chapter, chapter four, where you've raised a couple of hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, this chapter is really about sort of thinking of the company as the product and building an enduring company. Uh, what are a handful of things that you've had to change in how you run the business or how you think about the company in this phase? Yeah. Um, so I would say probably the last 18 to 24 months have been spent on how do we build a really strong kind of executive and then senior kind of leadership team. And it was kind of really getting out of that, the groove of sort of people with multiple hats to hiring the best people that we could find to run individual functions and sub-functions. Um, so that was part of the shift of like thinking about the company like a product. Um, and sort of to like stretch the analogy, it's like how do you have the best in class like versions or features or kind of competitive edges in each one of these things. So hiring a world-class sort of leader for demand gen or hiring a world-class CMO or kind of um, all of these pieces, that's really where I've been spending a lot of my time over the last sort of um, 18 to 24 months or so. And then also thinking through, like, we have a robust business, sort of it's not going anywhere. We have great kind of unique economics. We have low churn. We have all of these things. Like, how do we leverage this sort of position that we're in um, with these companies in order to be able to just do more for them? Um, and really, that that was sort of the the kind of thinking behind us going in. And we acquired a company called ProfitWell um, about two months ago to really kind of sort of solidify this this portion of Chapter 4, which is we could go, we had to make a very deliberate decision. And it was the deliberate decision was we can go and be the platform that thousands, call it maybe 10,000 sort of SaaS mm-hmm. company use for every aspect of running the business, every aspect of operations and payments and compliance and taxes and all this stuff. Or we can sort of expand our breadth. And I think this is sort of where the thinking about building an enduring company comes from. Um, we had this pillar product or platform um but sort of what we wanted to do and and we this was a lot of conversations and a a lot of like dark rooms um was we had to make the decision of like do we want to be the thing that 10,000 SaaS companies use for everything or do we want to be the company that every software company in the world uses one of our products and over time hopefully we can kind of grow into those accounts um and that was really we decided on the latter and that was really the rationale behind kind of acquiring this business so there are, depending on how you cut it, 150,000 sort of SaaS companies in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we acquired a business called ProfitWell, which 30,000 of those SaaS companies used to run kind of financial reporting, kind of revenue recognition and retention. Um, so it really sort of was the other bookend to what we were doing from the payments, subscription billing, and, and kind of um, operational aspects of things. Um, and really started kind of our journey into being kind of sort of the subscriptions company, like kind of how do we help different, there are different operational aspects of how you need to run a subscription company. How can we be something to all of those businesses and over time show them that kind of these other products that we have um, are a more compelling way to solve a problem that they have in their business. That's a very, and you know, that, that debate around, do you go deep in the current space you're in? Because you had still probably had 10 to 100x growth left yeah. in the market you were in versus go much broader and acquire something that today already has, sounds like ProfitWell has, you know, probably 10x more customers than you had prior to acquiring them. Uh, Tell me more about that debate. Yeah, so the thing that wasn't really a debate was I've always been a big believer in in verticalized software and payments companies. Um, So I think that the future of of payments and software is, is verticalized. So kind of think toast for restaurants, mind body for gyms and yoga studios and paddle for SaaS companies. Um, so that was never kind of in question. The The question was sort of what is the, within that kind of fairly narrow kind of vertical, kind of how horizontal do we go in terms of the different aspects of what we do for them? 
um, and really landing kind of on profit well. It was it was probably one of the few companies that we could have acquired, or it allowed us to do more within certain bounds. So of those thirty thousand companies, ninety eight percent of them are SaaS businesses. Sort of, we're not kind of going in. We're not acquiring, you're not changing the customer base. Exactly, you're just expanding. What we a set do. of companies that wouldn't necessarily buy what you offer today, or yeah. offer prior to ProfitWell, but would buy what ProfitWell has. Ex- exactly. So it was it was really staying within our lane in terms of we want to build this kind of operating system for how you run a software company, um, but sort of there is more that we can be doing, or that's adjacent to what we're doing today, um, that actually can be a faster track to market for us. Um, as we start to think about building kind of an ecosystem of products as opposed to a single kind of product that people go and buy. That's, uh, yeah, that's an important transition for, yep. for, for, for most companies. And it sounds like uh, you're well on your way to navigating that. Uh, I'm going to switch gears and maybe talk a little, you know, get to know you a little bit more. Sure. And, so, you know, success is always some combination of luck, talent, and hard work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, what the exact cocktail is, is will vary from person to person. Uh, but I'm curious, in what ways have you been exceptionally lucky? Oh, I think sort of when you were saying kind of it's, it's that cocktail, I was thinking for me it's mostly luck and hard work. Um, I don't definitely don't profess to be the most talented person. Um, I think in terms of exceptional luck, I think sort of there were a handful of instances and you can only kind of identify these things looking backwards but there was a handful of instances where kind of someone quite honestly decided to take a flyer on me um sort of coming out of that kind of partner meeting at Balderton and Mark being like kind of they're not going to do it but I will um sort of like yes there was sort of he obviously saw something but 95% of that decision for him like we had nothing 95% of that decision for him was some sort of patent recognition and also a hell of a lot of luck on my part. Um, I think kind of we, I think one of the, the this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I think one of the, the luckiest we ever got was very early in the business, we signed a very big customer. Um, and it was a business called Macor and they were eventually acquired by Adobe. Um, and we went from doing probably like, three grand a month in revenue to a hundred grand a month in revenue, like overnight, like very different scale from your existing customer. Exactly. It was sort of like we, and the three grand a month was coming from like 50 customers and then 97 customer was from hundred X of your, exactly your median customer. Exactly. And so we signed them very early and sort of, you could pause the story there and be like, Oh, that's really lucky. Um, but the, the actual lucky bit was, um, Four months in, they churned. So four months in, they were like, nope, like kind of this thing isn't ready. Like, Not you, for us. You guys suck, kind of all of this stuff. Um, and there were a bunch of like funny kind of anecdotes around how that happened. But that was the moment for us where we were like, oh, like we could sell this to bigger companies. Like there is an appetite for it. We're not necessarily ready yet. Like there's a bunch of stuff we need to build and a bunch of things that we need to do like in order to be able to do that. <laughs> but it is actually possible. And I think that that happening relatively early on, um, even if, yes, we lost the customer, we went back down to like four grand a month in revenue and then had to build it up very gradually. Um, and it was probably like another year or so before at that point yeah. again. That moment for us... It was us, an aha moment on the opportunity. Yeah, we were like, oh, wow. Like someone actually will buy it. And when they do buy it, that wasn't a particularly huge customer, like in terms of their size of business. The, the value of the problem that we were solving them for them was so great that they were willing to spend a lot of money on it. Um, so that that was probably the the luckiest sort of thing for us to happen very early. That's, that's a cool story. What do you, you know, as you reflect back on the last decade, where do you think you have been exceptionally good as a founder or CEO? We all have our superpowers. Uh, yeah, and we all have lots of gaps, but you know, I think it's our superpowers that propel us forward. And you really do have a remarkable story. So, what are your superpowers? I think I can. I think that, despite especially early days, and it, it's still obviously helpful today. I think whether it was to an investor or a customer or whomever, I could always like 
fairly clearly articulate a version of of what I thought the future should look like. And then this is most helpful with customers and then get them to buy into that relatively early, even if we're not there yet. Um, and I think that that plus sort of the ability to kind of build relationships with, with people, I think that helped us get a lot of credibility and a lot of goodwill really early with kind of companies that probably shouldn't have been working with us at the time. Um, so I think that I think that I always try and be sort of like the 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 dumbest person when I walk into a room. Um, and so I think that kind of initial sort of storytelling ability, but also the ability for me to kind of recognize I think good talent um, and bring them on a journey even probably at an earlier stage than kind of they would usually be willing to get involved in something. So I think it's some some semblance of being able to tell a good story and, and, and kind of hopefully identify talent at the same time. And intellectual curiosity from what you're saying. Yeah. The, yeah. the ability to walk in, as you said, and, and not make, make assumptions. Yeah. But just ask questions. And so that intellectual curiosity, that intellectual honesty that you may not know the, all the answers uh, combined with storytelling and then sort of the ability to pick yeah. people. I, I would say the other thing is I think at heart, fundamentally, I'm a builder. Um, I love building stuff. Um, so I think that our, it's still pretty quick today, but I think in the earliest sort of times of the business where it really mattered, our time to market on anything was was hours rather than weeks. Um, so like, I think my earlier sort of, a lot of those probably didn't pass the engineering sniff test, but I think kind of, I had an ability sort of at that scale to intuitively understand what the kind of the easiest solution to a problem was and then go and immediately build it. Um, and I think that we probably saved a lot of kind of cycles, cycles. Um, by doing that. Because you combine sort of the engineering brain with the product definition, product management brain, uh, which in, in many companies is sort of a process. Yeah. And, and you sort of collapse that into one. Yeah, uh, I think that's that, that's that's that, that's a fascinating way to describe it because I, I always look for that combination. I tell myself that I can find engineers who are great product managers. Yeah, that's the best starting point for a. Yeah, SaaS that's founder. the holy grail. That's yeah. the holy grail. And when you find that 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 combination, or you find two co co-founders, one's the engineer, the other's product manager, and they have a mind meld. Yeah, they they finish each other's sentences. sentences and, yeah. Magic happens. Yeah. You'd founded, you founded Paddle, as you said, when you were 18 years old. You'd never worked for anyone else mm -hmm. uh, but yourself. You hadn't gone to college, and so your exposure in terms of people was, was limited at that point in time. Uh, and yes, and, and yet over the last decade, you've you know, made remarkable strides. Tell me what have been some of the most important areas of growth and self-adjustment for you. Yeah. I think that it's interesting because I think that a lot of the things that can be thought of as strengths in the first like three or four years of the business very quickly become weaknesses in the, in the, in the back half. Yep. So well said the, the, the idea that I can be the engineer, the product manager, the person who goes and speaks to the customer, like all of that stuff in one probably led me to lacking very substantially in my ability to communicate um, sort of a plan because like no one else needed to know the plan. It was, it was all intuitively in your head. Yeah. yeah it was all and up for here. you. It was clear. It was, it was, you know, exactly. It was, it was, it was, it was blindingly obvious. Yeah. And, and, and to anyone else, if they, if they didn't also want, uh, this is, I think where my co-founder Harrison and I were, were the perfect match for each other. Like, for him, all of these things were like with very limited explanation, also really intuitive, but then he could kind of go and articulate those things and bring people on a journey much better than I could. So that's been one area of, of, um, of kind of growth for me. And I think the second area is like the ability to give feedback. Um, like they used to call it Hurricane Christian. Um, of like I come into a project at some point, usually fairly late on, a lot of people have been doing a lot of research, a lot of thinking, and a lot of work um, to make something happen. And I would come in and I would blow it up. Um, and I blow it up sort of for 
often the most mundane reasons as well. It would be that sort of it's not the picture of what I had in my head or something like that or any of these things. So my ability, I think, to one, communicate an idea clearly up front and then solicit input on that yeah. idea and kind of bring everyone on a journey, that's one area of growth. And then I think my second one is the ability to still be hurricane Christian or like the good, the good elements of that in terms of it's in service of trying to build something better. Um, but actually be able to, um, kind of articulate that feedback in a, in a way that's actionable as opposed to just a way that makes everyone feel bad. Tell me more about that journey, uh, that transition from throwing up when other people sort of come up with ideas to sort of finding a way to sort of make your feedback more actionable. And it's a really hard journey for most founders, especially very, product-centric founders like you, you know, they, ha they have an opinion that's intuitive mm. because they've thought in almost all cases about the, the product and the idea or the company a hundred times more than most people in the room. And yet they haven't been exposed to the details of how that, you know, that version came about. Yeah. I think some of this stuff happened naturally. I think the, the best forcing function were, for it was being comfortable... My, my area of comfort is obviously the product and engineering and, and kind of these things. I feel comfortable in, in all of these areas, but that's really my kind of first love. I think that all of this started to change when sort of we started hiring people who are obviously better at those disciplines, specifically product, than I was. Um, and then, like, once you get to that point, like, it doesn't take many Hurricane Christian scenarios that you end up being wrong before you start kind of changing your the way that you kind of you're tacked towards those different scenarios. And actually I love to learn like in whichever way that happens. So for me, the combination of, of hiring people who are better better than me at those disciplines, but then still staying pretty involved in them became an opportunity for me to learn stuff kind of through those things. Um, and actually it was it was less about reacting for me, it was less about reacting in a better or more positive way to those things. But it was actually more about minimizing the number of instances in which sort of that would naturally occur. And today I'm probably in a place where when I see something where that is my initial reaction, my first step is to ask questions because I recognize that I'm probably wrong. Um, so like kind of... And just take a deep breath and yeah, ask, ask the a questions. few more questions, yeah. And there's no such thing as a dumb question. And just keep asking the dumb questions until sort of like suddenly kind of you realize. And I think also like through asking those questions, like asking questions, I feel it's certainly in a product scenario is often the best way of soliciting, uh, like giving feedback. Because if you're asking a question for which there is not a good answer, it's usually because the question hasn't been asked at all. And actually through the process of somebody else answering the question, they often change that. Like they often, that is, they come to the same realization that you have. So rather than you skipping them straight forward to the answer, asking the question becomes sort of, the route in which you take someone on a journey in order to, to get to the same place. That's a great observation. And it's very hard to do, though. Yes. It's so much easier to jump to an opinion. And I find myself making that mistake in board meetings yeah. all the time, and I literally have to bite my tongue every yeah. time. You get frustrated. You yeah. can feel it boiling inside of you. Yeah. And, and the ability to just pause and take a breath and say, let me just ask a few more questions versus yep. assert an opinion. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the founders, a lot of the listeners on this podcast are first-time founders or aspiring entrepreneurs. What advice would you give them on starting, starting a company? I think probably two things. The first is I think that there's this natural, even if you, you're, you feel like you're the lowest ego person in the world or in the room, like there is this, tendency of founders and it's reinforced through like the, the like the Steve Jobs quotes that are like nobody actually knows what they want until it's shown to them and sort of you don't need to go and talk to anybody or anything like that and I think that I was definitely sort of subconsciously of that mindset um, so a piece of advice one would be just go and talk to as many possible customers as possible and just soak it in like you don't actually have to act on any of that that sort of stuff if you don't fundamentally believe in it. But actually the more data points that you can collect, um, especially in the earlier stages of a business, I think kind of, we probably could have saved a year 
um, year of like kind of pivots and tweaks and things where we went slightly down the wrong path by just listening more um, and kind of um, making that part of our day. And I'd say the second thing, and this is more like emotional advice than anything else, is running a company is really tough, but like the, the mantra that I try and like hold really true now is nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. Like the first read of something, you're either having the best or the worst day of your life. In 99% of those scenarios, like neither the, extreme is true. Yeah, the the best thing is is sort of just a slight kind of slightly above the median, and the worst thing is slightly below. And all of these things have very quick recovery times. Um, both very quick recovery time from the best thing that's happened to you because sort of the worst thing usually follows. Um, so nothing being truly as as good or as bad as it seems, I think is is genuinely kind of good advice for life because you avoid these huge swings. Um, and it's the huge swings that I think cause founder like burnout um, more than anything else is these huge emotional swings between yep. kind of well, the product worked or it didn't, or we landed a customer, but we lost a investor or whatever it is. Um, so it's, it's sort of like find a mental model or a way of running the business that lets you smooth the highs and the lows um, and kind of consistent sort of gradual up and to the right is is much better than and than this sort of oscillating line. And how do you do that? I mean, you're spot on. I mean, I think in some ways that's the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tell myself that one of the roles as investors we play and board members is to be a shock absorber. Yeah. Uh, both on the upside and the downside. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, but it's very hard to do day-to-day as a founder. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I think that's great advice I think what would be even more helpful is how did you get there? What any tips and tricks? And it may not be as simple as a set of tips and tricks, but yeah, how does one get get to that point? Yeah, I think that. So my my dad's favorite like saying growing up was sort of like when he wanted to kind of do something was what's the worst that can happen, and like actually when obviously that's a thing that everybody throws out, but in a lot of these scenarios when you actually sort of like take that as like an instruction like a question to go and answer what is the worst that can happen often like the answer to that question isn't quite as scary as like your initial reaction to it was what's the worst can happen if we sort of do x oh we'll lose the customer okay what what happens if we lose the customer well we don't hit this number what happens if we don't hit this number oh actually like that's what things it's a quarter yeah exactly what what who cares like sort of, so I think like actually truly, and it, it, it's much easier I find for the bad stuff of like, what's the worst thing can happen? And genuinely you can kind of rationalize your way out of a hole. And that's really what we're in is we're in kind of these deep, dark kind of emotional spirals. You can rationalize your way out of a hole. I actually think it's sort of much harder on the upswing. It's sort of like when you feel like you're king of the world and everything's going your way and it's sort of like, well, you're only sort of, you're only a a couple, day. Exactly. You're only a couple of bad moves away from having the worst day of your life. So I think actually that's where I think investors come in, like really handy, is sort of board members and really good ones who like, yeah, sometimes you need the pat on the back. You need the like, that was a really great quarter. Well done. Like, but like kind of like you're only as good, you're only as good as your last quarter. You're only as good as your last deal. You're only as good as sort of whatever. So I think like, figuring out a mental model to temper yourself out of the, the spirals and then having people who also sort of like don't let you get too big for your boots, um, I think is, I, I think is important. Um, I'm certainly, I've, I've definitely got good at the, at the getting out of the whole thing and sort of have a great board and a great kind of set of investors who kind of keep me honest. Sounds like that. Sounds like a lot of growth in the last few years. Uh, switching topics, you know, you wrote a very provocative blog post, especially provocative in these times when you talked about the fact that growth at all costs mm-hmm. uh, should be the mantra for all SaaS companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, was definitely a very popular point of view for a couple of years, perhaps maybe a little less popular these days. I uh, would love to get your, you know, your point of view in the current context. Yeah, I think fundamentally... It's interesting because there's a couple of different points of view and it's really easy to take the the headline view and be like, I agree with that or disagree with that. And I think all of these 
topics of made in the nuance. Like yep. if you take the like Paul Graham definition of like what is a startup, a startup is equals growth. Um, so I think that the the idea of like the the reason that we're starting these companies is fundamentally like growth at all costs. Like no one like both on my side of the table or your side of the table is starting or investing in one of these companies in order to get to three million bucks a year and then stay there. Um, Absolutely. I, th- I think that the the nuance comes of like a you have to growth at all costs. I think it has been kind of taken and twisted to mean growth at any cost. Like it's sort of like we don't have to think about unit economics. We don't have to think about efficiency. If we're wasting five million bucks here and five million bucks here, that's fine because it's all in the pursuit of growth. And I think that like what what has happened is the idea of growth at all costs has been has come like a label or a mantra or an excuse for just sloppy running of a business. Like it's become like an excuse to say, well, it's in pursuit of growth. So of course we can, if, like we don't have to be profitable. The uni economics don't have to work or a gross margin can be in the toilet or like any of these things. And I, I, I'm just of the opinion that like we are here to build, to use all of the resources and the tools that we have available to build the largest company that we can and have the biggest possible outcome that we can hopefully and do a bunch of good along the way as well. Um, I think I think I don't think any of that is at odds with I don't think pushing really hard and sort of doing these things are at odds with um, kind of this I guess mindset that we're in now about running businesses efficiently. I think both of those things have to be true. And if you look at the most sort of successful kind of companies of the last few decades, there are the companies for whom both of those things have been true. They've pursued growth in every available opportunity, kind of really really aggressively but they haven't got out of hand they haven't kind of they haven't ignored the fundamentals of running a business whilst they've been doing that i think that's well said i think you know that's part of the challenge uh that in the last few years this notion that growth and capital efficiency which may seem like contradictions actually need to coexist Mm. it's interesting And, and that's inherently what makes software special i mean the reason why Enterprise software businesses can be so valuable is if built correctly, they're incredibly capital efficient businesses. Yeah. They're incredibly enduring high margin businesses. Uh, and and at the same time, if you get product market fit right, if you get the basics right, if, if you think about the market the right way, if you define your market as, as you have the right way, you can have incredibly high growth for decades at a time. Yeah, not yours. And I, I think as I think as well, it's it's sort of one of these these interesting things where we love we love headlines and we love badges of honor. And for a while, there was a badge of honor which was who can burn the most money. Like, oh, they lost three hundred million dollars last year. Cool. And it's sort of like I find it, and and sort of yes, it was tempered with, but they grew six x. Uh, but it's sort of like actually, there is a point here of of in software of like diminishing returns on losing money and like we we've all seen the curve of like recurring revenue of like you lose a little bit of money up front and then obviously these businesses compound and the two lines meet and then kind of you generate free cash flow forever and i think that the 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 interesting thing is is sort of and i think the the tech media doesn't help with this yep um that everybody either loves great failures or great successes and actually the majority and probably even the most successful businesses are in between are built in the middle they're built not over three years and they're built sort of not by burning a billion dollars in three years and suddenly getting to a great revenue number and then for the next decade trying to dig the way out of that hole they're built by the businesses who grow incredibly aggressively over a really long period of time and compound and sustain and and sort of have the ability to do that. And it's sort of like we celebrate sprints and actually sort of these businesses are built in marathons. Well said. You know, one of the things we've been doing within the foundation team Mm. is is trying to find this balance for our own portfolio. And so uh, some of it comes from the metrics you use. Yeah. And, And, you know, the rule of 40 comes with its own challenges because it's just, it's a threshold. 
Yeah. It doesn't actually think about the continuum, yes. so to speak. Uh, and that threshold doesn't work for different points of time or different levels of growth. Uh, a lot of the other multiples, if you think of a revenue multiple alone, well, that doesn't factor in any efficiency at all. Yeah. If you start to think about EBITDA multiples, well, that's irrelevant until you're at least 100 million in revenues. And so yeah. the, the, the metric we have come up with uh, is a modified, you know, is, so we started off with the rule of 40 and we mm-hmm. modified it and said, think about the sum of your free cash flow margins mm-hmm. and your revenue growth margins, revenue growth. Mm-hmm. So if you're growing revenues at 120% year over year and your free cash flow margins are minus 40%, that sum will be 80. Yeah. And, you know, for fun, we decided to call it the golden velocity number. Mm-hmm. I have no no idea why we decided <laughs> that, but, you know, we were, we're having a beer, and that's the number we came Branding. up with. But that's our, that's, we think of that as the due north, yep. sorry, as the north star, where if you combine those two and the sum of free cash flow margin and, and revenue growth is somewhere in the 80 to 100, mm-hmm. you're actually a phenomenal business. And if it's above 40, that's what the rule of 40 would talk about. And rule of 40 uses different definitions. You know, very often they talk about EBITDA margin, which I think of as, as, as less relevant for smaller companies. If that number is 40, you're still doing fine. I think the issue has been there were a lot of companies that were growing at 100%, but also had a minus 100% yep. uh, free cash flow margin. And so we did it out. Yeah. You're down to zero. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, I think, helpful metric and helpful ratio. I think I think as well, there's a couple of them. There is a couple of metrics. And I think the interesting thing is you have to choose the right metric for the right time scale. So I think that, like, we should be monitoring this, yes, kind of annually and on a kind of trailing 12 months. But, like, let's also monitor this quarterly. Yeah, Like, I absolutely. think the burn multiple is a really great one to look at quarterly. Like, how much net new ARR did we add for how much kind of net burn did we do? over a period um and sort of like that's pretty much the metric that we've run this business on and we've we've tried to keep it as close to sort of one-to-one as we possibly can like we burn a dollar we make a dollar like we add a dollar of arr um and sort of that that became our north star and it means that sort of that that like you can't look at all of these things in isolation but it means that we always had sort of some sort of framework or like heuristic for sort of whether a, a initiative or something that we were going to do was actually kind of, one, the timing was right for us to do it, but two, kind of, it had enough kind of ROI there that it was going to be That's a great way to think about it because the burn multiple is very short term in some ways. I'm going, yeah. to, I'm going to burn another dollar. Am I going to generate a dollar of incremental ARR? Yeah. And, and, and that depends on whatever your gross margin at that point in time is. It depends on sort of the other unit economics are. But on an incremental basis, it's... Yeah, and I think your metric is really great to look at on a kind of slightly longer time yep. horizon. Because I think one of the, the key things, and we've done it a couple of times and, and um, we've regretted it, is everybody, every startup in the world has come up with a budget or an annual plan or something. And every budget that I've ever seen is a hockey stick. Yep. It's like, yeah, for the next two quarters, we're only going to grow like 10% a quarter. But for the two quarters after that, we're going to grow 50% a quarter. And it's sort of, but like, that's always the revenue line. And the cost line is the inverse. It's like, we're going to spend a ton of money over the next two quarters, but then for the last two quarters, we're going to spend nothing. And the problem with that is, is sort of you end up with a budget that has sort of like your kind of velocity metric kind of as the end goal. And then suddenly you start deviating from the plan um, kind of mid-year. Yeah. And then you end up with these massive misses. And that's when layoffs happen and emergency fundraising and bridge rounds and sort of all of this stuff. So I think it's like, for me, it's the combination of those two things. It's like, yes, we're going to create the budget. We're going to create the plan for the year. We're going to have a metric like that in mind of like, where do we want the trailing 12 months or the error kind of at the end of the yep. year? What do we want that to look like? But there needs to be some intra-year governance for like how... Quarter to quarter. Yeah, yeah. quarter so to quarter, how are we spending? Like, and- it's, it's, yeah, we want to end the year in a certain point, but there are so many plans that have this chasm in the middle. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to burn $20 million Q2 and Q3, but like, don't worry at all because we... It, it all we, works out in the we, end. We look end. great in Q4. Yeah, I think that's well said. Uh, I think a related topic, you know, it's obviously the, the topic du jour is, is valuations. Mm. 
in the correction. So without getting into the broader topic, which, you know, uh, valuations are what they are. The market yeah. decides in some ways. Uh, one of the things that I thought would be interesting to talk to you about is sort of how to think about valuations for software companies, SaaS businesses, and payment companies. Because you're at the intersection of both, and you, yeah. and you see both worlds. And I would say for the last few years, very often people wouldn't distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if you take the canonical example, Stripe was getting valued like a SaaS company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the last 90 days, that's changed dramatically. Yes. Uh, fintech companies, you know, Square, which is public, is the most obvious example, you know, has, sees a very different multiple, revenue multiple, just to stick to that metric yep. for a minute, than Salesforce or, or a similar size software company. ServiceNow. ServiceNow. Uh, what do you think? Should you do you think the market? Do you think they should be valued similarly? You live in both worlds. Do you think SaaS companies are inherently different from payment companies? I think I think it's interesting because, like, for the for the longest time, like investors haven't known which we are. They're like, you're a software company, you're a payments company. We don't know how to value you. Sort of like, we'll make it up. Um, I think that I think that it's interesting because I think that not even. I think the the short answer to the question is these aren't created equal. Yep. Um, but I think the more nuanced answer is no software company is really created equal. No payments company is created equal to each other. Like, so actually I think that really you can pick a benchmark kind of in any one of these companies. And then I think you have to adjust and you have to adjust for a few different things. You have to adjust for the, the the biggest variables of difference, like within those businesses. And I think the the three biggest ones are gross margin. Yep. So adjust for gross margin. margin. Adjust for um, kind of the recurrent the recurrence of the revenue, because you can have payments revenue that is highly re- recurring. Um, and I think the f- the 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 final one is revenue retention. And I think if you actually, if we take kind of the, I haven't done this, but I think if we, we, we take each one of those metrics and we adjust for all of, like normalize all of those things, I actually think that you probably end up in a very similar place to these businesses. Because really kind of you get discounted from a, a payments perspective for having lower gross margins, um, but you typically have much higher net revenue retention than a traditional even B2B SaaS business. Because you you're monetizing the growth of the underlying kind of businesses. I, so I think that framework makes a lot of sense. The one nuance I would add, though, just to push back a little bit, would be, you know, payments businesses feel recurring until they, or they are recurring until they're not. Yes. Because they're not contractually recurring. Yes. Uh, incentives are aligned. The moment you have an economic shock, they go through a very different cycle than a SaaS business where unless customers die, they have to keep paying. They're contractually obligated to pay yeah. And so I do think that stickiness is very different. Yeah, but I would argue in the in the SaaS realm to some extent um, as well. The as two, I think as two things occur over time. One being the sort of I think it's been called many things subscription fatigue, if you like, of like we're buying many many more things. Um, in a in a world even in B2B and enterprise software where the stuff is it feels more consumer in the way that it's purchased. Um, you take a, a a Zoom or a Slack or something like that where it's actually bottoms up SaaS and sort of bought within an organization. I honestly think we start to see the same dynamics as we see in payments in this true PLG. I, we use many I think you're many spot on. I think bottoms up SaaS actually looks very much like payments. Because it's actually not contractually guaranteed in many cases. Yeah, it's month, month it's to month. It's month to month. To the extent it's contractually guaranteed, it was signed off by some junior person. Mm-hmm. You know, they signed sort of an online contract. Yeah. So, yeah, you could hold them to the contract, but if they, you know... Reputationally, if, if, yeah, if they cancel good. the credit card, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, so I think that's an interesting way to think about it, because even in SaaS, there is a whole... There's a broad range. I mean, if you yeah. have three-year contracts with a Barclays Bank or a Vodafone. Not going anywhere. They're not, not going anywhere. Yeah. But if you have a $100 credit swipe, it's probably very similar to a payment. Yeah. And payment I, think that's the, I think that's the more interesting kind of nuance in this conversation is actually is a Snowflake or a service now the same, I know it's Salesforce now, the same as a, a kind of a 
Slack or kind of to use a better example, something that kind of many people like use like a Calendly or uh, like what are these bottoms up SaaS products that we use that actually probably follow similar kind of payment kind of dynamics. dynamics. And on a gross margin adjusted basis, probably look very similar in terms of multiple or should look similar yeah. in terms of multiple. Even, even sort of on a gross margin and a net revenue retention on all of these metrics, probably from a, from altitude look very, very, very similar. similar. I, think, I think that's a good way to think about it. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us today on the B2B a CEO podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. That's our show for now. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones wherever you get your podcasts or at foundationcapital.com. And if you like the program, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. B2B a CEO is a production of Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with over $3 billion in committed capital and 29 public companies to our name, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. At Foundation Capital, building companies is in our bones. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're a technical founder who's interested in scaling an enterprise startup into a massive business and scaling themselves into a true CEO, drop me a line. 